In the early 2000s, a British newspaper called The Independent decided to do something that their peers deemed radical. They shrank their pages from the classic, what's known as broadsheet newspaper pages, to something smaller, what's known as tabloid pages. And they were pretty much ridiculed by their peers. But what those peers didn't realize was where broadsheets came from. In the early 1700s, the British government imposed a tax on newspapers, and it was based on the number of pages that they published. So being very clever publishers, they just increased the sizes of their pages. They could print the same number of words on fewer sheets and avoid the tax. A hundred years later or so, that tax was repealed. But by then it didn't matter. Broadsheets had become the best practice. So in the early 2000s, when the independent broke from that tradition, they were ridiculed. But what's more ridiculous? Clinging to a best practice, born in a different context, or questioning best practices to think for yourself. Yes, finding best practices has often become our goal as creators, as business leaders, as marketers and makers today. But finding best practices is not the goal. Finding the best approach for you is. Today's guest represents that idea in so many ways. He questions best practices in his own work. He encourages others to think more critically about the missing context when he and his guests give out advice to you, his listeners. And in a very meta way, this show represents our need to question best practices because this guest had a very different view on preparing for and producing an interview podcast compared to some of the other guests you've heard on this show. It's the perfect meta lesson on a very meta show. I want to know how to do the things you do A thing, a two, a three that only comes from you Welcome to Three Clips. I am Jay Akunzo, and this is a Castos original series. By the way, just to close the loop on that story about the independent, not only did they save money on the smaller print editions, they sold more print editions at first, until years later, like many print newspapers, they decided to sunset their offline edition and go digital only. But in the meantime, they drove more revenue. That's just the power of context-based decision-making, which is something our guest talks a lot about today, not only in his work, but how it applies to all of our work as creators. That guest is Srini Rao of Unmistakable Media and the host of the podcast called The Unmistakable Creative. As a podcaster, he's interviewed over a thousand people, and his guests have ranged from peak performance psychologists to entrepreneurs, ex-convicts, cartoonists, artists, you name it. The premise of the show is to help you become more successful creatively on your own terms. Today, he's going to reveal some of the small stuff that made a big difference for his show. It's a very opinionated, insightful interview with Srini Rao. So the episode we're going to dissect today features author Austin Kleon. And one of the things I laughed at because I have an eight-week-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old was his comment towards the end of the episode where he talks about when you're a parent, there's a certain level of brain damage that you <laughs> incur. And uh, he said it's th- there's a certain helpful amnesia that if you remember what it was like back when you started, back when you first had you know, your first child, for example, nobody would have a second child. We, you've, you've built such a body of work and even specific to your show, you've done so many interviews. What's something that is kind of a useful form of amnesia in your work that it's going to be hard every time you do it, 
but it's useful not to think about when you did it before, because if you did, you might not pursue it again. Um, you know, I, I think it, it's funny because I think about difficult guests and you, so the funny thing is, I think that my standards are probably among the most ruthless in the world of podcasts in terms of who I say yes to, what I'm willing to tolerate, um, and the standards I hold people to. Like, I've had people that I've made them do more than one take, and if they're like, they say, they say no, I'm like, great, then we're just not going to air the episode. And, um, you know, some people tell me to go F myself. And those people don't end up being guests. Other people will go and do it and they will actually come back and say, oh, my God, uh, I actually just had a guest the other day who told me, he said, you know, when you initially told me that I, I was a bit hurt. And he said, then I went back and I listened. And I'm really thankful that you told me to do that because now I know how to tell my story better. Uh, I, to me, I, I think that what I am always interested in is a good story. What goes on in one of these interviews? And I'm sure there's not just one thing, but no. what is happening that causes you to cut in and ask for a retake or even just say, you know, we're going to stop here? Well, the thing is that often it's because the conversation isn't flowing, but more than anything, it's because I'm bored. And I know that if I'm not finding something interesting, there's no way my listeners will, which I, I realize that's obnoxious almost to say that. I, I'll give you an example. I had a guest who was the founder of a really cool startup, and I loved his product. And um, he kind of just said, oh, you know, all these questions are, are somewhat arbitrary. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, but these are the questions I ask a lot of people and they are able to tell good stories. And this guy just didn't know how to articulate his story. And uh, it's probably why startups have PR folks who actually go out and talk on behalf of the CEOs. Uh, often that that's one thing. Uh, the other is that a lot of these people come in having been sort of media trained or they've been on so many podcasts and they just kind of are used to sort of interacting on default. So Vanessa Van Edwards has a really great way of explaining this. We had her as a guest a while back when she had her book uh, Captivate come out and she said, you know, you can either engage in a conversation on default um, which is is kind of what a lot of hosts do, right? It's like, oh, how did you get started? What do you do? It, it, these are the questions that you ask when you meet somebody. And unfortunately, when somebody answers those questions, they don't have to think because they've answered all those questions a thousand times. So it doesn't actually break a pattern and force them to actually interact and engage. But when you throw them questions that other people don't ask, there are two things that happen. And this is incredibly delivered on my part. And I, you know, I have to give credit where credit is due. My old business partner, Brian, he spent about a year and a half just observing very closely what was happening. And he said, you know, you get these people into such deep flow states when they're talking to you, but it's taking 20 minutes to get to the juiciest parts of the conversation. And I think we can get there faster. And so he said, don't start change the way we're starting the show and start by asking them about something that has absolutely nothing to do with their work. And it was a brilliant observation because what I realized, of course, now looking back is he really understood how the brain works and human psychology works. We're all hardwired to listen to story. And so when you ask a question like the weird ones that I ask, which I'm sure you probably heard me ask, like what social group were you a part of in high school and how did that impact your life? There's no way that somebody can answer that question without telling you a story. And human beings are hardwired to listen to story. And so one of the reasons that we do that is because we want to create as many what NPR calls driveway moments as possible. And of course, the other thing is these are things that I'm morbidly curious about. Uh, I think you know the fact that I was a geek in high school probably makes me very curious about people who are cool or people who were interesting in high school. Uh, but the thing is that in those stories, often you will find nuggets that you just cannot find from reading a book or looking at a resume. In fact, 
one of the things I say is like, what is the point of doing an interview if all you're going to find out from a person is what you already did from reading their book or reading their website? Let, let's get into the clips. So we're going to deconstruct an episode from uh, March 2021 titled How to Keep Going When You're Tempted to Quit. And it features author Austin Kleon, like I mentioned up top. Uh, he, for those uninitiated, he's an artist and author of multiple books about creativity, kind of looms large for many creative people in their in their careers and very philosophical, very thoughtful, very energetic guy uh, when he appears. And he does appear quite often publicly, which we're going to get into. You know, how how you do take what you just said is a very crowded approach, the interview sh- show, especially interviewing successful people about their career careers and how you try to, you know, press that through the lens of yourself and your show. Um, but we want to get started really, really early, um, maybe knocking somebody off of the, uh, you know, the casual switched off mode that we might be in. Austin is rarely in that mode, I'm sure. But everybody has their expected questions, especially as you like ease into the meat of an episode and you leap right to the meat with this very first question that you asked Austin. Let's play that clip. Before we get into um, your work, I want to start by asking you a question which has nothing to do with it because that's how I start interviews, as you know. Um, and that is, what religious or spiritual beliefs were you raised with and how uh, have, did those end up impacting your life? Um, I was raised a Methodist. Uh, so it was very... Um, I, I went to church every Sunday. Uh, and, you know, the Methodists are pretty chill, uh, it's, it feels a little bit like a business meeting sometimes, you know, <laughs> like, uh, uh, donuts and coffee in the parlor. Um, and so I was, uh, you know, I, I was a, um, uh, I was, a altar. Uh, it's not really an altar boy, but like, you know, I like, I was an usher, you know, I was in the choir, um, I was confirmed like in sixth grade, you know, my mom still goes to that church. Um, so I grew up with a very, like, I grew up with, um, my, my, uh, paternal grandmother is, is, is intensely, uh, religious. And I always felt like, you know, she's kind of my line to the big man when I was growing up. Um, I don't think of it as a big man anymore. That was just when I was growing up. Um, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I love that you asked this question because I literally was the other day thinking I would re I would listen to a whole podcast where they just asked this question, like, because mm. I feel deeply that a lot of my favorite artists either still have some sort of religious faith or practice, really a practice, um, or they've replaced that religious upbringing with art. So, so many things I want to ask you about this moment. Before I do, I'd hand it off to you, Srini. What do you notice about that piece? Well, funny enough, I stole that question from Krista Tippett. (laughs) Uh, And this is is one of those things. Ironically, you know, it's fitting that you would, we talk about stealing and Austin is the person that we're we're showcasing. uh, Where he says, you know, stealing from one person is plagiarism. Stealing from dozens of people is, is originality. And that question was something that I came across when I was reading a book by Krista Tippett. One of the things I like about that question and the way he answers it is that inevitably, it just tees up so many more questions. Uh, just you know, he basically mentioned his grandmother. He mentioned you know the business meeting. Uh, you know, my parents have become much more religious as I've gotten older, and and I realized for my parents, religion is is basically a form of community, and I find 
religion mind-numbing because all Indian religious traditions are really time-consuming. As a productivity guy, that's incredibly frustrating. Um, I, I think the, the interesting thing about that is that he just gives you so much more to work with right off the bat than, say, if you know, you say, hey, Austin, tell me about yourself and tell me about your work. It's like, well, I wrote a couple of books. I do this creativity thing. Great. I already know that from looking at his website. Uh, there's nothing interesting about that to me. Like, what is interesting about finding out something you could find out by Googling it? It's not interesting to the person being asked the question, and it's not interesting to me as a, as the host. Uh, and that's the thing. I don't plan any questions in advance. And the, I know how I'm going to start. I know how I'm going to end. Keep in mind, I, I'm not saying I don't do any research. So uh, if somebody has a book, I always read their book. Uh, like, I will cancel interviews if I haven't read somebody's book. And nobody ever gets mad about that because that's a sign of respect. To me, it's really, um, I think, honoring their work because that gives you definitely fodder. So I do have an arc and I definitely get into the material in their work, but I don't like starting with it because getting straight into it doesn't lead to stories. And because here's the thing, if you give somebody a story, you give them a compass instead of a map. And I don't want to go out in the world and create copies of the people who are my guests. Our show is called The Unmistakable Creative. I want people to be original as a byproduct. Uh, and I think that that's one of those things that gets missed when you leave out the story and you just stick to the facts. Uh, because we don't actually make decisions based on facts. We make decisions based on emotion. We make choices based on emotion. We're influenced by emotion and story. So when you start an episode with a question like we heard with you in Austin with his religious upbringing, yeah. um, you know, there's he puts down what, what I call this answer. This answer has a lot of surface area, right? Yeah. Another way of looking at it is there's a lot of threads that emerge that you could pull. What are you looking for as places to take that? Are, are you looking for a follow-up there? Are you just looking no, for a contained moment? No. So it's funny. So we think about follow-ups, right? So this is really... Uh, this is this is what good listening is, and it's ironic because the joke with my friends and family of Srini sucks at listening. I don't understand how he's made a career out <laughs> until, of it. Until there's a public audience and you yeah, and no, your ego I takes mean, over. And- well, the, the, the funny thing is the minute I press record on a microphone, I'm a different person. It's like this alter ego. No, so I'm not really – I'm not thinking you know, immediately, oh, how do I follow this up? So this is a good analogy. They're the two sort of analogies that I think I, w- I would give you here to sort of explain this. Uh, the first is an onion, right? People are like onions, and your job as a podcast host is to keep peeling back layers until you get to the core. And so that first question is just to kind of get that you know first initial skin off of the you know the the first layer of the onion. The other uh, is surfing. When people are surfing, they don't actually ride straight down to the beach. If you see, you'll see they're actually riding parallel. They go either left or right. And the entire time, what they're doing is they're adjusting to whatever the wave is doing. And that's kind of the way that I think about these sort of follow-up questions is I'm simultaneously listening to what they say. And of course, you know, a question will pop into my head when they're giving that answer. And I have to be able to figure out how to stay present without thinking about that question too much um, because other questions will come up too. And sometimes I can actually connect the dots 45 minutes later uh, to something they said at the beginning of the episode. That's just one of those things that comes from experience. Uh, And the other, so this is, uh, if people listening haven't read it, Kate Murphy's book, You're Not Listening, is probably the Bible for podcasters as far as I'm concerned. Everybody should read that book. It's a goldmine of insight um, into exactly how this works. 
Uh, and she's, she's, she did a phenomenal job going into the science behind it and all of that. Uh, but the thing is that, you know, when, even if you plan questions in advance, you actually end up being a terrible listener because you're thinking too much about what's coming next. And, and this is one of the reasons people are so scared of this is they're afraid of not knowing what to say next. And ironically, that makes them more likely to ask a pointless question. I also make it a point uh, as somebody with pretty bad ADD to make sure there's literally nothing competing for my attention. So right now you and I are talking, right? I had to put this in full screen mode because if I don't, I will get distracted by something. Uh, so I'm really diligent about making sure that there is no, the only other thing that I would have open if I'm interviewing somebody is I have their book notes open, um, which I keep in notion. Uh, and I usually will highlight things and, you know, kind of say, okay, like, these are the things I know I want to ask about. What have you had to work at to improve? A lot of the things I'm hearing, I'm nodding in agreement. Um, it's very, you're taking complex ideas and making it very simple to understand. So I'm on board and I'm with you. And I feel yeah. like it's, it's coming natural to you at this point in your career. What was hard won over all these episodes and all these interviews? <laughs> you know, that, it's funny because that's a hard question to answer. And I'll, I'll, try, I'll try my best to answer it. It's a bit like, you know, when you learn a skill, for example, like I can't teach friends how to surf or snowboard because you're trying to deconstruct something that at some point becomes unconscious. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what one of the, the ones that I have to have had to work at uh, is verbal tics. And I still don't like the way this is something I've yet to figure out. I don't like the fact that I have to say, I want to start by asking you this. I wish I could just go into the question. I'm trying to figure <laughs> out the segue. I haven't quite figured out that that's like literally it's weird things like that, that I obsess over. It's like, how do I make this transition smoother? So I'll, one example, one of our listeners pointed this out and she caught something that I had developed as a verbal tick, um, I would always say, I'm curious before I asked a question. I was like, of course you're curious. You're about to ask a question. And when she pointed it out, it's all I could hear. It was so <laughs> annoying. And and the thing is, most of this stuff is unconscious because we're doing this so much. So I think that that's one of the harder things now is looking at sort of the, the things that go from, you know, I'm good at this. I know I'm good at this, but you know, how do I get to like David Letterman level? Let's look at the people who genuinely have, you know, mainstream appeal in popular culture, uh, because those people are clearly extraordinary at what they do. If you see the David Letterman show, the way that he's able to create a portrait of every single person that he brings to the show is brilliant. I think that when you look at people like Letterman, I think that what I have realized is that this is not a there's no I've made it moment. There's no pinnacle of achievement. It's a journey. It's something that you commit to for the rest of your life. And you say, okay, you know what? I'm committed to mastery, which means that I am never going to be done. I am always going to be learning. I'm always going to be trying to get better. Um, and I am going to look at you know models of possibility. I'm going to see what works for me uh, that they do. And also, you know, not get caught up in a lot of things. I think that unfortunately, you know, because of, of social media, and I remember when Craig had me on his podcast, he was telling me, he said, you know, who, who looks at our, their metrics, not people like you, it's the small podcasters who don't have many people listening. I'm just going to cut in here really quick as your host to explain to you who Craig is. It's Craig Hewitt, the founder and CEO of Castos, which is the software company for podcasters that actually owns this show. And Craig hosts his own podcast about podcasting called audience. Okay, back to my chat with Srini. I look at my metrics once a quarter because I have to basically do a report for our investors. Um, other than that, I'm focused on producing content because that's what moves the metrics. Was that the same? Uh, was that the case for you early on when you felt like I still need to build an audience? I learned that. When did I learn that? 
I learned that probably about two to three years in. It was because of Julian Smith who turned me on to this idea of writing a thousand words a day. And I realized that changing your behavior leads to far better outcomes than setting goals and trying to track metrics because behavior is something you control. And you know, if you go back to sort of books like The Four Disciplines of Execution, one of the things they say, and any sales manager or you know, CEO will tell you this, you focus on the lead measures and your, your leading indicators are the things that you control. It's like, how much content do I produce? How many words did I write? Not how many, because you have no control over how many people will visit your blog post or how many people will listen to your show. So you might as well focus on producing great content. And I think that that's often lost especially because of social media, because of the sort of, you know, goldmine mindset. And I, I think the whole idea of the podcast and gold rush is nonsense. I wish that people would not see it that way and realize that this is not some sort of shortcut to, you know, fame and wealth. Uh, keep in mind, 10 years ago when I started, people said that podcasts were going to be dead. And I think that the reason I stuck with it was because I enjoyed it. I liked doing it and people said that I was decent at it. So I thought, oh yeah, you know what? I'm enjoying this. And I mean, I wasn't making any money doing it. It was just really enjoyable. And I liked having the conversations. And uh, But the thing is that a lot of people don't think about this as a long game. They don't think about it as what Simon Sinek calls the infinite game. You know, to me, it's like, oh, if the podcast is successful and reaches a lot of people, you know what it gives me the opportunity to do? Keep doing the podcast. <laughs> I don't think people get that, right? Like the whole idea of commercial success in creative work is that it allows you to keep doing that work. So people have this illusion of this moment that they're going to arrive and it's nonsense. There's no moment when you arrive. Let's go to the next clip. So this comes about halfway through the interview. Uh, you had been talking to Austin Kleon about friendships a bit earlier. And so this is something of a follow-up question. Let's play the clip. Um, one thing, you know, before we, we start diving into this whole creative thing, I do want to ask you one thing about your friendships. And part of the reason I think this is on my mind is, you know, one, we just had Mitch Princeton here who wrote uh, a book called um, The Power of uh, Likeability in a Status-Obsessed World. And he has this section at the end where he talks about the seven stages of status elevation and how you go from being sort of, you know, lingering in obscurity where nobody knows you to suddenly like all these people know you. And yet, it's such a hard task to distinguish like who is there because of, you know, Austin Cleon, the author of steel, like an artist and who's there because of Austin, the kid in Sunday school, who was my best friend. What has that experience been like for you? Because I find, you know, that that has often been something that I've struggled with. I'm like, okay, do people really know me or do they know the character that I've created online? Well, this is why I just think pseudonyms are so, powerful and i love like you know like whatever lady gaga's name is <laughs> i don't know her name but you know yeah. it's got to be helpful for her to say well i'm not lady gaga you know cary grant used to say everybody wants to be cary grant even i want to be grant cary grant <laughs> or yeah. like you know it's you know or bob dylan used to say you know it's halloween good thing i got my bob dylan mask on you know i mean like these people knew like what they were you know like the austin cleon that most people know is just me like it's like a version of me it's like a very helpful uh up to like like happy helpful version of me you know um I mean, my friends think it's hilarious that I've written these books because they know me as this, <laughs> I mean, you know, like they know me as this deeply like 
kind of curmudgeonly. <laughs> I've always been kind of a grumpy, <laughs> you know, I've always been kind of a grumpy old guy, even when I was 19. I mean, you know, and so. What do you notice about that moment? I, I think that no matter what anybody says, our closest friends get a different version of us than our audience does. And that's by design. So, you know, if you think about Austin, like what he, he mentioned that one of the things I had to learn me behind the microphone to some degree is a character. Uh, you know, it, it, granted, I, I mean, I've integrated personal stories and, and aspects of my personal life into it, but it's not a hundred percent, you know, raw authenticity because it just right. can't be. Uh, it, and I've had to figure out where that line was. Do you feel chained at all? Do you feel stuck by it? No, because I think that this is the understanding that you gain from life in the public eye. And it's the problem is it's hard to explain to somebody. And look, I, as far as most of the world is concerned, I'm nobody. So let's just be clear about that. Uh, but one of the things that I think is, is important here is to figure out a line in terms of what you deem appropriate for public consumption and what you don't deem appropriate. Uh, you know, I saw a post the other day and, and out of respect to the person who posted it, I'm not going to even name the name, but I thought to myself, you're talking about a traumatic experience and posting it on Facebook literally hours after it's happened. That's actually not of service to anybody. Uh, that's actually just a cry for help. And that's the job of a therapist, not an audience on Facebook. And I only know this because I've been that person where a breakup caused me to act like a complete moron. And my mentor basically tore into me and he said, you're acting like a damn teenager. You know, you're going to tear apart everything that you've built because that is the, the one thing about being in the public eye is that people have an expectation of who you are and what you're supposed to be like. And there are going to be times when you cannot live up to that expectation because you're dealing with your own crap. But that doesn't mean you air your dirty laundry for your audience, um, in my opinion. One of the things that I've heard debated uh, on several interviews we've done, uh, not on this show necessarily, mm -hmm. but across different shows, is who the work is for. And I think that also yeah. changes how the how you uh, show up in the world. Like if you are absolutely if you are your public persona consistently, or you're like, you know what, I don't care. I'm going to change in the blink of an eye and become this other type of persona publicly. So uh, Tim Urban talked about writing for a stadium of Tims. Mm -hmm. Um, when I talked to the comedian, Sarah Cooper, she talked about, uh -huh. she felt very chained as a comedian doing, you know, nights and weekends, and then eventually full-time corporate comedy. And then, you yeah. know, she exploded because she was doing Trump based comedy. And so she felt very chained to, yeah. you know, the, what others wanted from them, who they wanted to show up and receive yeah. versus at that moment in time, who the individual actually wanted to show up as, uh, ha yeah. have you felt that friction at all? Well, you know, unlike Sarah, nobody ever hired me. I was fired from every job I ever had. So my, my luxury is that, you know, I didn't have that expectation. I kind of got to shape the expectation of how people wanted me to show up right from the get-go. Um, so no, not really. And, and at the same time, I think that as, you know, whatever semblance of public presence I've had has become larger, um, I think I've had to learn how to make that distinction between people who are flattering and people who like my work and not, you know, not making the mistake that, oh, this person likes me. And particularly, I think in the context of, of romantic relationships where that has been problematic. I worked with a dating coach where, where he said, this is, you know, one of those things I had a therapist who told me just so you know, this is not going to end. He said, it's going to get worse as you get more and more down further in your career and you progress. He said, more people like this are going to show up in your life and you need to decide now how you're going to deal with them. And when I did some work with a dating coach, he said, you know, here's the thing. He said, you know, 
what's going to happen is that these people create an image of you in their head. And unfortunately, you'll, for better or worse, you'll never live up to that because it's going to be different than the version of you they heard on the podcast. Because it's, it's a bit like looking, imagine you're walking down your street and you look through the window of somebody's house and you see this you know, family that just looks like the damn Brady Bunch at the dinner table. And you assume that that is what their entire life is like. But then you leave and they all go to each other's rooms. You know, the husband and wife are fighting or they're beating each other and you don't see any of that. So you assume that what you saw through that window is real and that that's how you're basically making an assessment on the entirety of somebody's life and who they are based on having seen a small fraction of it. It's kind of like Instagram too, right? Um, Scott, Seth Godin frequently refers to this book, um, Understanding Comics. I'm, I'm not a comic guy, but um, every time he mentions this book, this, this comes up. Uh, and the guy's name is Scott McCloud. And he talks about where the magic of comics is, is what happens between the panels. That's where the story takes place. The funny thing is, you don't see what happens between the panels on Instagram. You don't see what happens between the panels on Facebook or on Twitter or between my podcast episodes do you or any other podcasters podcast episodes you don't see any of that so you hear somebody for one hour and you construct this false reality in your head of who they are what their life and what their lives are like our our final clip is self-explanatory i'd say it's the final question of the interview which you hinted at at the beginning of this interview uh, is something you do understand is coming. You plan out the first and the last, or you have a rough idea at least. So this is something that I'm fascinated by is a lot of people have uh, an opener. Some have the same closer. A lot of lightning rounds come to mind. Uh, You're doing both. So in addition to hearing what your closer is, I do want to talk about this bookend approach. But first, let's hear this question that you ask of, of Austin. So I want to finish my final question, uh, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really starting to... Uh, I, I, I play all the time with, with the idea of... I, I, I wrestle so much with authenticity, this kind of... This notion of authenticity... Because it seems to me so worthless in art and 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 in other realms too, but there is something that I think makes someone unmistakable, which is just really being yourself. Really, and I know that's so cliched, like be yourself. Like what? But I feel like there's a way when you put on a mask that you're more like who you are than when you're naked. There there are costumes you can put on where you're more of yourself. And if, you know, uh, we've learned anything from modern culture, it's that we should let people try on, you know, I love drag. You know, I love, I I love what RuPaul says about drag. She says, you know, um, he's, uh, you know, RuPaul says, uh, you know, we're, we're all born naked and the rest is drag. Uh, and I just think what makes someone unmistakable is just you get the feeling that they've sort of self-realized that they're sort of like, this is who they, it's sort of a pure essence, I guess, is what I'm looking for in art. I'm sort of looking for like someone who it seems like they figure out how to fire on all cylinders, you know, to really, to take all the pieces of themselves and kind of bring it all together into something unique, you know, I, I, like they're not, 
they're not denying any part of themselves. You know, they're using the whole deal. That seems unmistakable to me. It could be hard to dismount on a, an interview. Is that the reason you come up with that or, or repeat that question? Or why do you ask the yeah, same question I mean, every time? Pretty, I, I guess that's one reason. Um, it is it's kind of a nice way to put an end to it. It, it you know, works well with the theme of the show. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a good way to put a bow on it, really. It, like you said, it's the the dismount is is very hard. Like I still can't figure out how to close the show without saying we'll wrap the show with that. Uh, but the yeah, it, it's just I, I think part of it is that. Um, funny enough that I mean that question also informed a lot of my writing and um, a lot of how I, I think about the world. And um, it, because everybody is going to answer that question in a different way, and that's what I think is interesting is that you have this question. Um, and and the thing is that it's not sort of a yes or no. It's a very sort of open-ended question that leaves a lot of room for possibility, uh, which I think is really important. That was actually, you, you're heading me off at the pass in a great way because I mentioned you have these interesting openers and then you have these uh, the same closer. And then you also talk about things that aren't commonly found on all these interviews with the same, you know, same names answering the same questions, snooze, unsubscribe, please. Um, However, I understand uh, setting aside maybe the laziness or the fear of the creator, thinking about what someone does with the information of Austin Kleon's seven steps to success, that kind of bite sells, right? That's what people seem to gravitate towards. And so you're building a business around this show, but you're exploring things that are more in the emotional territory. They're not like seven simple steps or the one simple secret. Um, what what are you trying to change for your audience? How are you trying to to serve them? You mentioned compasses versus directions or maps. Maybe that's something that you can yeah, impact. That's for a, absolutely. So let let me frame this up with an example. Uh, so you may know my friend Benjamin Hardy. You know, probably the the most read writer on Medium. He had an article titled Eight Things Everyone Should Do Before Eight A.M." You know what? There's not a damn thing on this planet that every single person should do before eight a.m. Yeah, because guess what? If you just worked a 13-hour shift at a hospital, the only thing you should be doing it before 8 a.m. is sleeping. And so, you know, with my rant aside, what I think is really important and frequently missing from, you know, the things that you say sell, like, you know, Austin's seven tips for whatever. Not, not, not that he does that, by the way, but if yeah, you're yeah, packaging I know, it. I know, I know, I know, I know what you're saying. Right. The problem with that kind of, you know, packaged formulaic advice, um, there are two things. The first is context. And what I mean by that is the same advice in one context might be amazing and garbage in another. One of the reasons I've never taught a course on how to start or grow a podcast is because I had numerous variables that I can never replicate for anybody. You could follow my plan to the letter and you're not going to get my results. My plan would be get fired from every job you've ever had, move back in with your parents until you're 37, spend your time writing, get lucky and have an editor find your article on Medium, get lucky and have Glenn Beck find your self-published book and become an author. You'd be an idiot if you thought that that was going to work. Uh, and so that's really important is the context in which you're getting advice from people really matters. Because the same thing that works for Tim Ferriss to be productive is totally not applicable to a mother with an infant. I only know this because I had this experience with one of my own community members and former podcast guests. She would show up to our calls with a baby in tow. And one of my mentors made me realize, he said, you haven't been in office in 10 years. You don't have kids. You're a single guy. And I realized my productivity advice needs to be considered in the context of these people's lives, which I always, why? I don't ever say, oh, 
I'm the end all be all of authority on this subject. I literally tell people in my programs, consider the possibility that every single thing I'm telling you is bullshit because it might be for you. So context really matters and people don't consider it. If context didn't matter, every single person who took a podcasting course or started a blog would end up building a massive audience just by following you know, the letters, the, the instructions are, are taking all the lessons, but we both know that's not what happens. You know, and my, my mentor, Greg used to make this distinction between what's probable and what's possible. And too many people don't even think about what's probable. That's one. The other is, is, you know, and this you know, sort of is a continuation of context and it's variable, like uh, the variable that throws off every one of these so-called tips or formulas or whatever it is, is the person applying it. And you can take, you know, I could go apply a piece of advice and if I applied it to my business, it might be a disaster, but if somebody else applied it to their business, it might be the best strategy in the world. So, you know, this is the way I would sum this up. Anytime somebody says that everybody should do something, you should assume that whatever follows is complete bullshit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the, final, the final question I wanted to ask you was why you're still doing the show. You've done a thousand episodes now. What, where else do you have to go with this thing? Uh, for putting aside the format, right? But just the material, the lessons, the insights, the joy you get out of this. Why are you still going? You know, it, it's funny because I think part of it is progress. You know, you just basic psychology at work. You do a thousand interviews. You have this momentum kick in and you don't want to stop. Um, yeah, I think to me, it's it's still mastery that drives me to become, you know, world-class. What I do. Don't get me wrong. Like, I still want to build this to a point where we sell the company and get acquired and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, that's really kind of what a lot of my behind-the-scenes work has been over the last year is, you know, building systems for scale. Uh, but that's not the drive, really. That's not the motivator. I think just deep down, I love telling stories. Awesome. Uh, Srini, some, th- this has been great. I really appreciate the work you do. Some shows will send cards in the mail or swag to say thank you. We all know where that stuff ends up. So as a way of saying thank you, we're, we're going to place a small donation in your name to nokidhungry.org, which is doing awesome. incredible work to eradicate child hunger in America as a way of saying thank you, not only for coming on the show, but for the great show that you do uh, with the unmistakable creative. So thank you so, so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was produced by Cherie Turner with original theme music by Cardboard Rocket Chip. You can learn more about me and my projects, including my free newsletter, my books, and my course for podcasters at jayacunzo.com. This show is an original series from Castos, and I love partnering with that company to bring you the show. Castos creates software tools for podcasters who are serious about connecting deeply with their audiences. I mean, that's what they believe podcasts are for. And I completely agree. And so as a result, Castos is developing tools, not just to host and measure your show, but to go deeper with your audience. One suite of tools they're currently focused on are private podcasts. Whether you're a marketer or internal comms person at a big brand or a creator who's hoping to build an income out of their podcast, or at least reward super fans with something a little bit extra and a little bit secretive, you can create a private podcast with Castos. Check out their tools at castos.com. That's C-A-S-T-O-S.com. As always, all of these links are in your show notes. And now it's time for our bonus segment where every episode we ask our guests for a podcast they'd recommend that is not at the top of the charts, a show they'd like to show some love to. We call this segment Play It Forward. And Srini, being the person who questions conventional thinking and doesn't like rules, he actually suggested two shows. (laughs) So here's two different recommendations from Srini. 
All right. So the first one is the uh, Intuitionology podcast series by Sunil Godse. Um, I really liked that interview because um, Sunil just asks really good questions. He asks deep questions. To, to me, the funny thing is some of my favorite interviews have been with lesser known podcasters because they're, they really care. They actually put a ton of effort into really creating a compelling narrative. They're funny. They ask good questions. Uh, and then the other one, uh, it is called the Max Out Podcast. Um, his name is Max Weigand. Uh, and he asked fantastic questions. He really had a very engaging way of being because I think there's more than just asking questions. I mean, as a host, you're an entertainer. And he was funny and he was, he was present. Like he had a presence. And I think that that's why I like talking to him so much. Yeah, the Intuitionology Podcast and the Max Out Podcast with Max Weigand. All right, that's it for this episode. As always, I'm Jay Akunzo. And as always, I believe our success as podcasters is not about who arrives. It's not about the download totals. It's not about just empty growth. Reach can be bought, but resonance must be earned. It's not about who arrives. It's about who stays. That's where our success happens. And I could not do this show without you sticking and staying. Thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting me and this show. And thank you for producing the work that you do in this world. We need more podcasters like you. I'm back this coming Monday with a brand new episode of the show. See you.